jump right in because we're running a little bit late now. Sorry about that. So last week, we're doing a series in the book of Judges, a very light and, you know, warm, fuzzy kind of book in the Bible. And last week, Megan talked about this man named Gideon. We introduced him last week. And uh, we talked about how sometimes God uses unlikely people in the least likely ways. And this reminds me of a story. Uh, when I was in high school, um, basketball wasn't my first sport. It was my second sport. But I was on the basketball team, junior year of high school. And there was this guy on our team named James Hendershot. That was his last name, Hendershot. And uh, his name was actually, I think, ended up being kind of prophetic because James was not this great player. In fact, I'd say he's like the 10th or 11th guy on the bench. He hardly ever got into the game. And he's one of these guys that um, in practice, he would just start jacking these like three-point shots, like outs, like, like Steph Curry distance. And he'd never make them. And we're like, James, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking these crazy shots? You never make these shots. And he was like this a bit of a social outcast and sort of isolated and just never seemed to really get it together on the basketball court in most games. Now, this one game, this one night, was the night of James Hendershot's vindication. Because this one night, we're playing this team that we had never beaten before. This team would, would often beat us by 25, 30 points most times. And we've played this, this team like several years in a row, and it's like we could never be. This team had a 6'9 guy. Our best guy is like 6'2. They would just dominate us at every level. But this one night in our gymnasium, the gym is packed out. The alumni have returned to see if we can finally beat our arch rival. And something just happened. At some point, James gets into the game. Coach puts him in. And the guy just starts taking his three-point shot. But this time, he's making three after three after three after three. And as the game begins to go on, this game goes into overtime. And we end up beating this team, our arch rival in overtime. It's like one of those moments where, like, movies are made. Like, do you believe in miracles type of a situation? And, um, like, the, the crowd rushes onto the court. And it's just crazy. It's mayhem. Um, I can recall one of my teammates saying, if we beat this team tonight, I will kiss the gymnasium floor. And he did, yeah. along with all of our teammates. And it's kind of weird and gross, but that's what happened. Um, but but it, was, it was the night where, where everything came together for James for some reason. And he, I think he had like 30 points in this game um, that we beat our arch rival in. Now listen, sometimes the least likely people do the most unlikely things. We see this all throughout the scriptures, and we see this in the story of Gideon. So turn in to Judges chapter 7. And I'm going to summarize uh, sections of this for you so it's not as, as long and detailed, but we're going to look at, um, I think my slide thing's not working here. Next slide. There we go. Uh, actually, let me go back. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. All right, Judges uh, chapter 7. Verses 1 to 6. Here's a summary of that section. Uh, so Gideon's preparing to lead Israel against the Midianites. And the Midianites have terrorized Israel for about seven years. And there's tension just building up with the Midianites, with, with Israel. And things are now at a breaking point. So normally whenever an army is gearing up for battle, they say, we need a lot of people to take on this battle. And 
They need every person available. But here God does something really strange. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, he tells Gideon, he says, Gideon, you have too many men to take on the Midianites. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into your hand, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So here's what God's saying. God is concerned that if they're too big, they're going to take credit for the victory. And this really, I think, is human nature, isn't it? To take credit for things we should not take credit for. It was true of Israel. It's also true of us in our own salvation as well. So Israel, if they had, if they had beaten Midian with all these troops, they would have boasted in their own military power and success. And sometimes we're tempted to boast in our salvation. We know, of course, intellectually that it's all based on God's grace, which is unmerited favor from God. But oftentimes, at least internally in our hearts, we can struggle in the same way, thinking that we've somehow saved ourselves. Or we continue trying to save ourselves, at least externally in certain ways, when we know our salvation is based on His grace and mercy to us. So here's a summary of Judges 7, verses 1 to 6. So Gideon's about to lead Israel against the Midianites, and God tells Gideon to, so God's trying to pare down the troops. So God says, any person who is fearful, you, you say to your men, um, if you're fearful, I want you to leave and go home. Well, that pairs it down from like 22,000 down to like 10,000. It's helpful to know that more than half your troops are scared out of their wits, right? So they go home. Then God says, well, there's still too many. And so he, he tells Gideon to perform this test. I'm not going to get into the details of the test right now. It's too involved and complicated. But the test reduces the number from 10,000 down to just 300 people that are going to fight against Midian. Now, do you know how many people Midian has? 135,000 troops. So that's one Israelite for every 450 Midianites. So look down at Judges 7 verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp of Midian, for I have given it into your hand. So now he's telling Gideon, all right, you have 300 verses, 100 and some thousand. I want you, Gideon, to go down to the camp, and I want to show you something. So here's a summary of Judges 7 verses uh, 10 to 12. It talks about how Gideon goes down to this Midianite camp, and at first he's intimidated and scared, just like you think he might be. But then while he's there, he overhears a Midianite soldier sharing a dream that he had. Now, we don't know if, if Gideon is like, is he in disguise, or how does he hear this information? But somehow he hears about this dream of a Midianite soldier. And uh, here's what it says in Judges 7, verses 13 to 14. So when Gideon came, behold... A man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold. That's how they talked back then. They said, Behold, and they would say stuff. Um, he says, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. That's his dream. And his comrade answered, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Okay, now listen. 
So this guy has a dream that a biscuit falls out of the sky and hits his tent. And then the other guy concludes, that's it, we're dead meat. Like we're dead men, right? You know, because everyone's scared of the barley cake, right? Um, you can imagine the old men telling war stories like, you know, they had horses and chariots and spears, and then they busted out the barley cakes. And then it just got bloody. It unraveled from there, right? So um, it's really impressive this other guy, this other soldier, interprets the dream correctly. Because I don't know how you get from, like, a biscuit hitting a tent to, like, we're all going to die. I'm not sure how you arrive at that conclusion. But this guy actually gets the dream right, the interpretation of the, of the dream correct. So um, what's happening here, here's, this is symbolic because barley cakes were the food of the poor. So this is really symbolic of the poor little feeble Israelites striking down the powerful tent of the Midianites, and this guy interprets it correctly. So look at Judges 7, verses 15 to 18. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon, um, he hears this dream. He hears about this dream when he's over there in, in Midian. And, um, and uh, it says it causes him to worship. When he hears this dream, he calls him to worship God. He goes back to his camp, the Israelites, and he puts his 300 men into three different groups of people. And does he tell them to, you know, go get your armor, your swords, your shields? What does he say to go, go get? He says, he says, go get your, your trumpets, your empty jars, and your torches. So you're like, well, what, what's the plan here, Gideon? Are we going to, like, stab them with trumpets? Are we going to beat over the head with jars. What's the battle plan here? And he says, we're going to go down to the Midianites. When we get there, I'm going to blow a trumpet, and then you're going to blow your trumpets, and we're all going to shout. That's the battle plan to go against the Midianites. So look with me at, at the next uh, few verses, Judges 7 through 19 to 20. It says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon so these 300 Israelites they surround Midian their torches are hidden inside these jars and the moment that Gideon blows the trumpet, they also blow their trumpets, they break the jars, and now there's just utter chaos throughout the Midianite camp. Now again, this doesn't look like a very good plan, does it, to win a battle? But here's why it's brilliant. Look at verse 21. It says, Every man 
stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. So this is now the Midianites that are in chaos and running. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrades. So Midianites are now killing other Midianites. And against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth, and I can't say that word in church, toward Zer, I can't pronounce that either, as far as the border of Abel Mehola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Okay, so what just happened? So it's nighttime. Uh, you know, at nighttime, you are prone to disorientation. If someone wakes you up suddenly, um, you know, I think it's funny because I think about how I wake my kids up before they go to school. And listen, I'm a very loving father because I walk into my kid's room and as I leave the light off and I walk over, I kind of just scratch their back and say, hey, you need to get up for school, you know, and, and that, my kids still wake up kind of in a stupor, like what just happened. Um, my dad, however, who was not loving when it came to waking me up before I went to school, my dad has this fixation on the military, and he would, like, come into my room, flip the light switch on as bright as it can be, and do that, like, bugle thing, right? That, that thing that they wake people up in the military. That's how he wake me up, and it's like you just, you're just suddenly awakened, right? You have no idea what's going on. You're disoriented, and that's kind of what happens here to the Midianites, because a third of them are asleep in their camp, and a third of them are out at watch. And so a third are back um, in their camp, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're asleep waiting for their shift to come throughout the night. And suddenly they hear loud noises, loud trumpets. They hear the breaking of jars. They come out of their tents. They see these torches. And so they're confused. They're disoriented. Because the night watch was divided into three shifts, and so a third of the army would take each watch of the night. And at the changing of the guard, one third of the army is walking back to their tents while another third is asleep. So when they hear all this commotion, because Gideon times it just right, those who are asleep hear all the commotion and chaos, and they rush out of their tents, and what do they see? They see men, their own men, coming toward them with swords and and, and spears and shields, and they think they're under attack. So they begin killing their own people. This is what happens with the, the chaos that, the, that Gideon and the Israelites created. So they begin attacking one another, and the 300 Israelites are standing off on the sidelines just watching the whole thing take place, the whole thing unfold. They never lifted a sword of their own, and Midian was defeated. So we know that the Israelites, they can't really walk home and be proud or boastful about what they've accomplished because they didn't really do anything. They just made a bunch of racket, and then it was like, okay, the Midianites are now defeated. So what do we learn from a story like this? Well, the few points I want to point out to you. First, God does not simply work despite our weaknesses, but because of them. So God's saving power does not work whenever you and I do things in our own strength. It, it, we see biblically throughout the Bible that it's in our weakness 
that God often brings about the victory. And not just that God works despite your weaknesses, but God often works through the actual weakness in you. He did the same thing in Gideon, I believe. It's true for Israel. It's true for us. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says this. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul goes from an unbeliever to a believer, miraculously, and now he's receiving direct revelation from God, which might make somebody get a little bit arrogant, right? And uh, if this is happening, if you're getting direct revelation from God, you might become a little prideful and conceited about that. So what does God do for Paul? God sends him a thorn in the flesh. There's controversy as to what this even meant. I'm not going to get into that right now. But there was this thing, this nagging thing that God sent to Paul to keep him humble. So he's not puffed up with prideful arrogance. And Paul sees it as something sent from God, and it's to keep him humble so that he can see the power of Christ and that God's grace may rest upon him. You know, I think of uh, about two weeks ago, I was, um, I guess it was two Sundays ago, I was in uh, beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado. I'm sorry, guys, I had to, you know, say that, but you guys are stuck here in Temple, Texas. And, um, and I went on a snowboard trip with some guys, some friends of mine, and, uh, and I'd been to Breckenridge to go snowboarding like 25 years ago, a long time ago. And it was my wife likes to make fun of me for being kind of nostalgic and sentimental because I can be that way sometimes. And, uh, but I'm at Breckenridge, and I was there 25 years ago on a ski trip with some students at a different church. And um, there's this little conference center at the base of the mountain that we stayed in this place. And I was kind of walking around the grounds, like just kind of reminiscing of being there 25 years ago. And it's a little bit special because there's this ballroom upstairs in this conference center where our group would meet in the evening for, we do like a sermon and a worship time at the end of each day after we'd ski and stuff, you know, because trying to make, you know, skiing spiritual and stuff, you know. Um, And uh, so we would do that in the evening. And a week before this ski trip, the youth pastor I worked with said, Dave, I want you to give a sermon on the ski trip. And I was like, I'm like 20 years old. I'm going, what, me? I don't want to do that. And he's like, no, no, I want you to do it. And so he basically made me do this, something I did not want to do, had no desire to do. And so I'm slaving over writing this thing. How, what am I going to say to these students this, this one night of the ski trip? And, uh, and then the night of the talk comes, and I remember being in the bathroom at the place, like preparing for this talk and looking in the mirror, and like, I look stupid, don't I? This looks stupid. I feel stupid. And, and trying to recite this talk, and how am I going to say this up to these students? And I was just terrified of giving this sermon. And walking through that experience, I just thought, you know, I never want to do this ever again. That's what I said to myself. And, uh, and then, you know, I did it, and it was fine, and nobody got hurt, right? It was, it was fine. And, um, and then years later, it's like God, God ends up 
like nudging my heart towards ministry. And, and, and so here I am, like, what, 25 years later, looking at that room and going, that was where I gave my first ever sermon in that place and thought I would never do it again. That was my plan, right? But what you find in the Christian life, you know, what if my attitude going into that was like, I got this, no problem, this is going to be easy. Listen, I wouldn't know his power if that was my attitude. But it's often when you feel weak that you get to experience his power in an amazing, life-changing way. Because if you're not doing that, you're going to boast in yourself anyway and say, I did this. I accomplished this, this mission. So when God wants to accomplish something through you and in you, he will most often use your weakness, not necessarily your strength. And he does it so that he gets the glory. We also see some, uh, there's some more about weakness and strength here in this passage. We cannot be saved if we think we are worthy to be saved. So your salvation starts with weakness, understanding your position before God. We cannot be saved if we think we're worthy to be saved. And then secondly, we cannot repent unless we know our weaknesses. So even as a Christian, your repentance should take place, in a sense, in in weakness, like bringing your weakness to God, saying, God, I repent, I turn to you, I turn from my sin, I turn to you um, as I repent of my sin. I love the words of, uh, of Keller here. He says, someone who thinks there is little in them to forgive will have little love, yes, will have little love for their forgiver. So when you see your sin debt is like, it's just down here, it's not a big deal. But when you see it up here, and recognize what's been forgiven of you, there's a greater chance that you love God the way that we should. So imagine if someone said to you, because y'all don't really have bills. Like your parents have bills. Y'all don't really have, at least some of y'all do, but some of y'all don't. Um, but imagine if someone said to you, um, I paid one of your monthly bills this month. Well, how you react to that depends on which bill it is, right? If they paid your Netflix bill, I mean, it's like 10 bucks. Who cares? Not that much. But if they, what is that? Um, yes, we're being invaded. But if they pay like a much bigger bill, like for your parents, their, the house payment, y- your joy is going to like increase based on the, the size of the bill, right? That's how that works. It's only when we see how big our debt is that we take joy in someone paying that debt for us. That's why I think many Christians... Um, those of us raised in the church, we struggle with apathy because we start to take for granted. We don't see ourselves as that sinful or that bad because it's just like, well, yeah, of course. You just take it for granted. We forget how big our debt was before Christ saved us. The next point, things which stand against us are not as strong as they appear. So the Midianites had 135,000 troops. Gideon has 300 And Midian is one of the most feared armies in the world. Israel has nothing except for God to back them up. So what are the things that frighten or intimidate us or keep us from growing in Christ? Those things are not as powerful as they might appear. So, of course, we think about the most obvious. There's Satan. Of course, he's powerful, but he's not more powerful than God. We can't overemphasize his power. Satan can't can't force you to sin doesn't have that kind of power. What about idols in your own life? They can also have some power, but 
their power can be broken. That idol can be broken through the power of Jesus Christ. What about people that the outside pressures or people that are like persecuting people or, or mocking Christians? Well, again, that's outside pressure, and that might be intimidating or kind of scary, but um, at the same time, it's not more powerful than Jesus. So whatever you're, you're feel, fearful of or intimidated by, those are things that are, those things aren't as strong as they appear, and they're not more powerful than what Christ can, can do in you. You know, one thing I love about this story is how God asks Gideon to step out in faith, but then he also assures him along the way as he goes. He sends him into a, into a camp where the enemy is, and he overhears the Midianites, and he sees the fear in them. And so God gives Gideon something to hang on to as he goes. He doesn't just say, just go blindly. He, he gives him something to hang on to as he goes. And I think you can say it this way. Sometimes God may ask us to take risks on the way to assurance. Like, you've got to take the risk to get to the assurance. Many of us want it backwards. We're like, no, 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 give me the assurance first. Give me the confidence. Give me the boldness first. Give me the sign first, and then I'm going to go. And God says, no, you need to go. I'm going to give you the assurance as you go. So going into the enemy camp would have been risky for Gideon, but it's right there where Gideon finds his assurance, right there in the enemy camp. And, And going there took a step of faith, an act of faith. It's the place where God gave him the confidence. It's the place where God led him to worship and and stirred him to action to lead his people against the Midianites. Listen, I take you to uh, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, a famous passage. But I want you to see, not take these words for granted. It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And then what does he say? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, if we never go and make disciples, we're not going to experience the reality of the second part of that verse where he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Whenever we take a step of, a a bold step of obedience, we're going to find him walking right along with us. So we're going to have you guys go to your